as we get started this morning, the one thing that there's kind of like just this one big idea that I just want to kind of throw out, whereas this, this whole, whole text this morning and the whole big idea this morning is kind of one big thing that I want to set in front of us before we even get started. Um, and it's been something that we can see all through Matthew, all through the entire Old Testament, all through the entire New Testament. Just this idea that every single thing that is happening, the whole life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his upcoming crucifixion, that all of this is going exactly as God planned it. That, that all of this is working together as this perfect divine will of God. As Matthew started, as we went through his lineage, that all of this, that it was God working, it was God decreeing these kinds of things and that we're going to see today, even with his upcoming crucifixion, that this was always the plan, that God had always planned to send his son to die for us. And that's kind of just the, the big idea that I want to set out. And then as we go through the text today, um, we'll see this in, in different ways. The last couple weeks, we, we saw Jesus ta talking about end times, so talking about what it's going to look like as he, as he returns, as he comes back. And last week, we saw that he was calling his people, his, his church, his followers, to be faithful up until that time. And there are specific ways that that played out. And so that's kind of where we're, where we're going to start. We're going to start in chapter 26, verse 1. And we're going to break this up into a couple different passages. 26, we're just going to read 1 through 5 to start out with. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. When the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So this is actually the fourth time that Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to die, that he is going, that, it, that it's coming. And this is the first time that he actually puts a timestamp on it and says, in two days, Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So you see, Jesus is saying, this is exactly what's going to happen. But then in verses 3 through 5, we, we see that there's actually the chief priests and the elders of the people. It says they, they come together and trying to figure out how they're going to get rid of Jesus, how they're going to kill him is, is, is kind of their goal. But there, it says they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the reaction of the people. If you remember back when we were talking about the triumphal entry, we saw that um, during the time of Passover, there was extra thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That um, there was always this heightened expectation for the Messiah to come. And this led to a, a lot of anxiety, a lot of people very anxious, waiting. There was a lot of people very tense, but, also, but in excitement and ready for the Messiah to come. And these, these leaders say, let's just wait until it clears out. Let's just wait and do this when there's less commotion going on. And here's what I love that I didn't necessarily realize until I really studied this week, but... Going through Matthew and through the other Gospels, we see there's been numerous times where they've tried to get rid of Jesus. They've tried to, to like, they kick him out of their cities. They, Luke records one of the instances of them actually trying to throw him off of a cliff. And it says he escaped from them. So they, they tried to get rid of him in the past, and they've been unsuccessful in doing so. 
But what I love is that now that they say, we want to get rid of him, but we want to wait. We want to wait when there's not so much commotion. We want to wait till people kind of leave and people won't riot. But even in this, they're going to be unsuccessful because he's going to die in two days at the, at the peak of Passover. And I, it just shows that that's why these, these two things paired together, verses 1 and 2 and then 3, 4, and 5, I just love they're paired together because these, these guys think that they're plotting this evil plan, this plan to get rid of Jesus. But it's not their plan that is working out. It's not their plan that's going to come true. But it's this eternal plan of God to send Jesus to die as a ransom for sin. That it's not their plan. It's always been his plan. It's always been him working that out. And you see both of these, and Jesus is saying, no, like in two days, I'm going to be delivered over to be crucified. All through the Old Testament, we see Jesus being prophesied about, different aspects of his life, different um, things to say. This is what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes. And Isaiah 53 is one of those that is talking specifically about him being a sacrifice. It's often referred to as the suffering servant. Actually, when Nick got here today, I asked, like, are you guys doing that song? Because that would have been really perfect. But I'm going to read Isaiah 53, 3 through 10. Just talking about what Jesus, he was going to be the suffering servant, the one who would be crushed for us, the one to be sacrificed for us. So you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to Isaiah 53. But we see that this has always been the plan. This has always been exactly what God willed would happen. I'm going to start in verse 53, or chapter 53, verse 3. Talking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, who has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand." It was the will of God to crush him. The will of God to save his people. That was always the plan. There's always this idea that people say that, that the men continue to, to mess up and God continues to, to react and, and, and continue his, his will even though it's, it's, it's us and God is just reacting to us. That God is continually changing his plan to save us when we continue to mess up. 
I don't see that. That God has been directing all things. That it was his will that Jesus would be the plan. That Jesus would be the sacrifice. That Jesus would be the atonement. That it's not just by the hands of evil men, but it's by the divine will of God. When Peter was preaching in Acts 2, listen to what he says. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan of God, that this was the plan of God to reconcile sinners to himself, was Jesus, was him. We're going to get to the the responsibility of the sinner. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But that it wasn't just man's evil plan that killed Jesus. It wasn't just... Judas betraying him. It wasn't just the scribes and the Romans that tried to kill him, but that this always was the will of God. What we see through the rest of 26, and as we kind of start with this right here, we see that this was the plan to rescue his people. As the Jesus Storybook Bible would say, that God is sending his rescuer to rescue his people. It's, it's, I just love that Jesus Storybook Bible. But this is, this is all going according to the will of God. So let's go ahead and continue to read. I'm going to read 6 through 16. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. We see another, this this contrast here of, of this woman coming up to Jesus in this act of worship, in in this act of honoring Jesus, and then on the other hand, we see Judas, one of his original 12 disciples, betray him and offer him over for 30 pieces of silver. As this woman comes up to, to anoint Jesus, it really kind of sounds like the woman who came, the woman of the city that came to Jesus to wash his feet with her hair. And both times, the response to this act was met with ridicule from the disciples here, from um, the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders that were there with Jesus, uh, his earlier time with this other woman. But both times they were met with ridicule. They're saying like, no, you're wasting this money. It's better served if you would use it elsewhere, use it for the poor. But both times Jesus says, no, like these, these women, they get it. 
Both times, these women are having the correct response to who Jesus is in their midst. That both times, their act is worship. When the disciples, when the others there are distracted by by other things, instead of being just in awe and in worship of Jesus. It, it's kind of hard to fault the disciples, really. I mean, their, their desire was to give to the poor, um, was to give that money, um, the significant amount of money that it would have cost to buy that ointment, to give that to the poor. And it's not that that's a bad desire. Obviously, we saw last week that, that Jesus commands us to, to give to the poor, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit the, to visit the sick, to visit um, those that are in prison. Like, obviously, that is what we are commanded to do. But it's the fact that the disciples, their focus was off. It wasn't that they were that the, that desire to give to the poor, to give that money to the poor was wrong, but their focus was off. Because as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, their first and foremost call was to be worshipers of God. Their first and foremost call as followers of Jesus is to worship. And I think that is why Sunday morning corporate worship here as the church is so important. Like we could easily say, let's just cancel all we're doing. Let's just get rid of these things, the, these things that we do on Sunday morning. Let's just go out and, 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 give, and give food to the hungry instead. Let's go ahead and cancel all this that we're doing and go give clothes to those that need clothes. Let's give water to those that need to drink. Let's cancel all we're doing and go do the good things that, that we're commanded to do. Is that what we are called to do? Is that ultimately what we as the body set apart by Christ that we're commanded to do? Yes, but no. Like, yes, we're called to meet the needs around us. Yes, we're called to, to be obedient to Christ's command and, and giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the, the sick and those in prison. Absolutely. But our first and foremost call is worship. Our first and foremost call is to be the church that, that worships and glorifies Him. Like that's why as we gather during this time, as we sing songs, as we pray, as we are, are the body that Jesus, the church that Jesus has made, we are to worship. We are to ascribe Him the glory that He is due. Now, obviously, there's needs that can be met. Yes, we do that. I'm not trying to separate the two. But I'm saying that first and foremost, our call is to worship. And all the good works that we talked about last week, those things that are going to flow out of our love for Jesus, that's going to be there. But our first call is to worship. Our focus is to be on Jesus. Our focus isn't just trying to meet needs, because if that is all our focus is, then it's nothing more than just morality, just trying to, to be good and to, to do the right thing. Like the disciples get caught up in focusing on the money that could be there, the people they could help, instead of just worshiping Jesus who was in their midst. Same as the lady that was washing his feet with her hair. Like she was just so caught up in who Jesus was and that she was a sinner in need of him. That that's all she was concerned about. Jesus says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. 
He's not, Jesus is not at all contradicting what he said last week. He's not at all saying, you shouldn't go and meet the needs of people. You shouldn't give to the poor. You shouldn't feed the hungry. That's not at all what he's saying. But that's out of our worship for him. It's out of our worship of what he is doing, the spirit leading us. So you have a, this woman that's so focused on Jesus. But then you have Judas in, in these next couple of verses that, who had always been following Jesus for the last couple of years of his life, and yet she, she, he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. There's, I'm not going to get too heavy into this, but this was also prophesied about in the Old Testament in Zechariah. But it says that this was always the plan of God that Judas was going to do this. It was told, like I said, Zechariah, this is prophesied about. But it's all going exactly how God has planned it. I'm going to read the next set of verses. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were, they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So this Passover feast that they're, that they're gathering to, to celebrate would have been one of the most important festivity or festivals, um, feasts that they would observe as they looked back to celebrate God miraculously delivering them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Specifically, the final plague that, that as, as the firstborn in all of Egypt were struck down, that it was the blood of the, of the lamb, this Passover lamb that um, would provide this atonement for them that would pass over their house. And it was, it was them remembering God saving them, God delivering them through this. And, and as they would celebrate this feast, there was a very specific order of, of, order of operations, I guess you could say it. But there was the Passover lamb that they would eat, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread. There was, there was wine. They, they sang very specific hymns. And Jesus as a Jew, was going to celebrate this with his disciples. And it says he sends them into the city to, to secure the place where they would celebrate this. It sounds very much like when he sent his disciples in to get this donkey for him to ride in. He says, go in and get this. You're going to see a certain man, and you're going to ask, you're going to have to ask him, and just go do that. It's like, okay, who's that certain man? Luke gives us a little bit more detail that it was going to be a man with a a water jug, a water pitcher. But even then, it's, it's Jesus saying, this is how it's going to work out. This is exactly how it's going to work out. And at some point during this meal, we have this conversation between 
Jesus and his disciples. This, this kind of awkward, where he says, one of you is going to betray me. And we, we see that they're upset by this. They're sorrowful about this. But even then they start asking, is it I? Is it I, Lord? Even Judas says, is it I? Trying to fit in with the crowd, trying to fit in with the rest of them. Is it I? And one of the things, I want to, I want to really look at one verse here. It's verse 24. I'm just going to read it again. It should be up here. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This goes hand in hand with like what we've been talking about, that, that it was, this was the will of God, that the Son of Man goes as it is written, that it wasn't, it wasn't a God adjusting at this moment and, trying, and, and then deciding to offer up His Son as a sacrifice, but it's going as it is written. It's going as it was planned. That Jesus was going to be the sacrifice. That, that was the plan. But then we see the, the second half of the verse. It says, but, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Like It doesn't take away the responsibility of the betrayer. It doesn't take away the responsibility of Judas in his sin against Jesus. I know this brings up the whole discussion on, on God's sovereignty and and the responsibility of man. I'm not going to even, I'm not going to solve that question. If you want to talk about that more in your CGs, by all means, please do. But in this verse right here, we see both. We see that, that this is all going as it is written. It's going exactly according to the eternal divine plan of God. But that man is responsible for his sin. Judas, in his rejection of Jesus, is deep in his sin. His rejection of Jesus as his Savior. But this is all going exactly as God had planned it. Matthew doesn't give us this, but at this point we see in in the other Gospels that Judas actually leaves. That Jesus says, go do what you're going to do, and Judas leaves the scene. That Jesus leaves Judas leaves the dinner. And that's very significant because it's at this point when Jesus is going to give us the commands for communion, for the Lord's Supper, which we believe is reserved for followers of Jesus, who those that have been saved through his blood. But And Judas leaves at this point. So I'm going to go ahead and read 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. It's here when he, when he gives the command for communion, one of the two sacrament, sacraments that we believe that, that, that Jesus left for the church, the other being baptism. 
But in these, in these verses, he says, this is what communion really means. This is, this is, what, this is why you're doing it. He's, he, takes, he takes the bread and says, this is my body. He takes the, the wine and says, this is my blood. If you remember, again, back when Jesus first entered the city uh, in his triumphal entry, we, I mentioned that, that this was Jesus as the final Passover lamb, as the once and for all lamb being sacrificed for sin. And I read different people asking the question this week of, why, not, why did Jesus not take the Passover lamb and say, this is my body? Since he is the, the, the final, the, the once and for all Passover lamb, why did he not use the lamb? Because as the final one, that lamb was no longer going to be the sacrifice for sin. That was not something that was going to ever have to happen again. That the Old Testament sacrificial system for atonement for sin was done. That he was the final. That, that there was no more of that. The lamb was no longer needed because he was the lamb. The wine, Jesus says, this is my covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, it's the blood of Jesus that that is providing the forgiveness of sins, that it's through his blood that we are being reconciled to God, that that we're able to be saved, that, that Last week he said that the wrath of God, every single ounce of the wrath of God that we deserved was being set on him. Isaiah 53 again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Our transgressions. Our iniquities. He was pierced. He was crushed. His wounds are healing. Like, this was Jesus. This was him accomplishing it all. What we could not do. This was all him. And it's him continuing to work all of this for the glory of God. Like, this is why we take communion. We don't believe that anything supernatural happens when we go take communion. Other denominations might, might believe that it be actually becomes the, the body of Christ as we eat. It actually becomes the blood of Christ as we drink. I believe that bread was probably bought from Kroger and is going to be bread. That, that that grape juice in there is grape juice. But it's also not some just mere act that we do as a routine or as ritual. But there's real significance in in what we do. There's real significance in communion. Like as we take communion, as we are ripping the bread off of the loaf, that we are remembering that it was his body that was beaten, his body that was scourged, his body that was nailed to a cross. Communion has real significance as we as the church are able to celebrate what Christ has done. As we're to understand that he did that on our behalf. That he did that, he took all the wrath on himself. His blood was shed for the sins of man. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11 that 
that we are to examine ourselves first. That the communion is not something that's supposed to be done just willy-nilly, that we just go do it because we do it every week. We don't just go up there because that's what we do, that it's a part of the church service, so that's why we do it. That's not communion. Paul would say, examine your heart first. He would say that if communion is done in the wrong manner, that we're drinking judgment on ourselves. That's first, that says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32. Because communion is a serious thing. As we, the church, have the opportunity to, to follow in obedience as, that, as he commanded, to do this as often as you meet together. That's why we say, like, it's not, we don't, you don't have to be a member of this church to take communion, but you absolutely have to be a follower of Jesus who has been saved by the blood of Jesus. That has to be your only hope, and that is what we are proclaiming when we take communion. As we remember what he has done, and, that, and knowing that that is our only hope. That's why we say if you're not saved, if, 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 you're, if you're unsaved and you're coming to take communion in your sin. And Paul again would say, you're drinking judgment on yourself. That's why we say, please don't. Please don't come do this if you are not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not trusting in his blood for forgiveness. And I, maybe we haven't taught this often enough, but... Before we take communion, just as Paul says, we're examining ourselves. We're confessing our sin. We're repenting of our sin. Understanding that it's his blood that allows us to even have this communion with the Father. I'm not trying to intimidate anyone from taking communion. I hope that if there's intimidation there, that it's just as we come and repent our sins of our sins as we go before God, but also knowing that it is through Jesus that we can be justified, that we are saved from those sins. So then we're not coming to take communion perfect. We're not coming to take communion spot, as spotless or anything because we are sinners, but we're taking communion as sinners saved by grace. If that is you, if that is where your trust and hope is, I would say that if there's sin in your life that you are unrepentant of, that you're not willing to turn from and say, no, I'm holding on to this. Please don't come take communion. It's to be taken seriously because it is Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Like where we re-gospel ourselves, understanding the gospel, understanding that it's Jesus' finished work, that allows us to be, that justifies us. I want us to see that this was the plan of God, that Jesus would be sent to die the death on the cross in two days' time, in Matthew time at least. Two days' time that Jesus is going to die. And that was all the plan of God. 
He's always been working towards this. And this is where our focus is. Our focus is on him. Our focus isn't just trying to do good things. Our, our focus isn't just trying to, to, to follow acts of obedience and trying to, to do the right things. But our focus is on him. Our focus is on him who is worthy of every single ounce of praise that we could give him times infinity. Like, this gives us confidence that as we trust him, as we trust every single thing that his word says, that we know that he's using all this for his glory, that he, from eternity past, planned that Jesus would die on a cross to reconcile a people for himself. I just pray that, that as we as the church think about what Christ has done, that we not just think about what Christ has done as some just mental exercise, but that we would truly just search our hearts, that we would beg God to search our hearts where we can't, to lay it all before him, to confess our sins if there is, where there is sin, Understanding that he is our hope. That he truly is a good, good father. That is providing a way that we might be saved. Like spend some time re-gospeling yourself. Reminding yourself that, that we are sinners desperately in need of grace. As we pray, as we spend time responding to who he is. Spend time praying. Spend time begging him to reveal your heart. But also reminding yourself of who Jesus is, what he has done on our behalf. Because we're leading up to the crucifixion. We're leading up to his death. And to remind ourselves that it's our sin that he is dying for. It's our sin that, that Jesus is shedding his blood for. I just pray that we would truly reflect on this, that we truly know the significance of communion as we take communion. That we spend time, just you and God, as we respond in song, as we respond in just a time of worship, that our hearts just be focused on Jesus, not focused on an instrument, not focused on anything else around us, but focused on Jesus. And that we'd respond in worship in whatever way that looks like, but we respond in worship as we're focusing on him. Let's pray.